You are listening to Dermcast.tv, the official online media resource for the Society of Dermatology PAs. Thanks a lot, Dave. It's certainly a pleasure to have an opportunity to be here again this morning. Um, for those of you who may not have been here yesterday when I spoke, my name is Jim Del Rosso. I'm a dermatologist. I've been in practice for 30 years, 20 years in Las Vegas, where I have a clinical practice, clinical research center, and obviously involved in a lot of educational activities. I do want to thank Dave Melsness and the group from Paradigm. They do a great job putting together CME programs. And this is different than the promotion, what they call a promotional or non-CME type program that I did yesterday. So this is CME, so we can, it's really much more expanded in what we're allowed to discuss. We're not necessarily limited to on-label discussion there, that we don't have those regulations. The CME uh, program went through the process of being vetted to make sure that the information uh, has some substantial backing. And when I give comments that are based on my own experience or anecdotal, I will point that out. So we're going to be going through quite a bit with atopic dermatitis. And atopic dermatitis is obviously a disease state that we all see pretty much every day in our practices. Uh, if we have in general medical dermatology, certainly pediatric dermatology, but adults, there are a lot of adult atopics more than we, we appreciate, and we'll talk about that a little bit. So we see these patients frequently, and we have a pretty good mindset. I'm sure everybody in this room has a pretty good mindset of what's unique about patients that have atopic derm dermatitis and atopic skin and how we manage those patients. But there's been a lot of new information that has come along that has to do with pathophysiologic mechanisms of atopic dermatitis. And more information we're learning about the epidemiology and the potential risks that patients have that have atopic dermatitis, because atopic dermatitis does not typically live alone as a skin disease. It's part of a genetic diathesis that predisposes patients to other problems, like allergic rhinitis, asthma, sometimes food allergy, which can be significant, uh, allergic rhinitis later in life. And so there's a whole constellation of things that go along with atopic dermatitis, the atopic dermatitis being the first thing you see in individuals, but all these other manifestations can come later. The pathophysiology is important to have some sense of understanding. You don't necessarily have to know every detail, but it helps us target new therapies that we're going after and trying to treat the mechanisms of the disease. And you notice I didn't say pathogenesis. I said pathophysiologic mechanisms because there are a lot of signals and there are a lot of circuits going on that relate to why patients have certain manifestations in, that have atopic disease and atopic dermatitis. There's not one mechanism or one pathogenesis that we can put our finger on, and that's a very important thing to understand when we're trying to conceptualize what's going on in the patient in front of us. I, I urge you to take the time in your mind to develop that ability, and it will become more and more facile that when you're seeing a patient with atopic dermatitis, psoriasis, acne, rosacea, that you're visualizing what's going on within their skin and not just what you're seeing as if you're practicing urgent care dermatology. I can't stress that enough in the management of chronic disease. We're gonna be talking about assessment, treatment guidelines, which are just that, they're guides, they're not things that are set in stone. Many treatment guidelines that are developed are by 
people that get together that, ha that know a lot about the disease, they read about it a lot, they write about it, they research it, but a lot of it's based on people's opinion with some evidence-based uh, involvement to try to support that. It's not exactly what you have to do in every case. What goes on between the clinician and the patient is really what's most paramount. So it's really important to understand the disease. Then we'll talk about some of the disease uh, state approaches, how we manage patients depending on how they're presenting at that time. And then the emerging, emerging therapies are really important because we have a couple of therapies that are coming along. We have a phosphodiesterase 4 inhibitor, topical crisoboral, uh, which uh, should be coming along relatively quickly. And we have an injectable dupilumab, which is uh, a very important agent. It is going to really change the face, a biologic agent, of how we treat patients, especially that have the higher end of the severity of the disease. So those things are very exciting and are very close to fruition. And they have a lot to do with the pathophysiology of the disease. Then we'll sum up and try to get some questions and answers because I think all that's extremely important. So let's start with epidemiology and comorbidities. Obviously an extremely common problem. Significant number of patients in the population around the world. It's going to be more in civilized countries, okay, because of a variety of different reasons. The kind of housing people live in, what they're exposed to in their environment seems to increase the disease. And it says here it affects two to 3% of adults, okay? Obviously a lot higher in the pediatric age group. Most atopic dermatitis, when you see the eczematous dermatitis, the actual visible disease, happens within the first two to five years of life. Significant number of cases. Now it can start later than that. And we know what it looks like. We know when we see that little baby that comes in with the headlight sign, that the cheeks are, are scaly and eczematous looking. You could diagnose it uh, by looking out into your waiting room, across the waiting room. And the central part of the face does not have that involvement. And then as they get into the, uh, the, the uh, childhood years, they have the antecubital and popliteal accentuation and, and all of the itching, those textbook pictures. Not all the cases of atopic dermatitis have that textbook picture. And as you go into the adult years, it is a lot more than 2 to 3%. A lot of the patients that you're seeing with localized eczema, eyelid dermatitis, nipple eczema, itchy genital areas, itchy generalized skin, numular eczema, if you inquire, a lot of them are adult atopics. It's a lot more than 2 to 3%. We just don't look at, we don't see those characteristic presentations in those groups of patients, so we label them with another type of eczema when a lot of them are actually atopic individuals, if you drill down into it. Also, contact dermatitis, allergic contact dermatitis, is common in patients that have atopic dermatitis. Their, their immune system and how they respond in the skin is dysregulated, and they'll develop nickel, ex uh, nickel eczema and other forms of, of uh, allergic contact dermatitis. So just because you're seeing an allergic contact dermatitis patient on that day doesn't mean that that patient might also not be atopic. And it affects everybody. It's an equal opportunity disease. It doesn't matter your age, your gender, your race, your ethnicity. It doesn't matter. Any of us can be affected by that. One of the things that's important when you look at childhood eczema is 
asthma in children is more likely to be associated with the presence of, presence of eczema at some point in time, usually early on. So there is a definitive association between asthma and childhood and patients being atopic and having atopic dermatitis. Regardless of when you see that patient, at what point you diagnose it, or even within the last 12 months if you've seen them, asthma is often emerging in those individuals early in life. So that's a very important thing because asthma can have significant consequence. It's obviously a burdensome disease if suddenly your child can't breathe, right? It's a, it's a difficult situation. Now you might already be familiar with what's called the atopic march. And what we're looking at is the typical sequence of events. Now realize that typical means there are people that are outside of that bell curve that don't necessarily follow it. You always have to recognize that. But this is the typical sequence of events of when they're going to develop the eczema, the eczematous dermatitis, the redness, the scaling, the itching, right? That is not specific, that, ex that eczematous presentation is not specific to atopic dermatitis. If you biopsy it, you're not going to get a result from the pathologist saying, this patient has atopic dermatitis. They'll have eczematous dermatitis. And that's just a reaction pattern that could be irritant, it could be allergic, it doesn't have to be necessarily atopic. So they develop that eczematous dermatitis, and then usually in childhood, they may develop some food allergy. That can go away, typically will go away, but it can be significant in some of those patients. And we're gonna talk about when you think about looking for food allergy. Because if you just do it randomly, you're going to find things that are going to be a wild goose chase that may ne not necessarily help you in the management of that patient. Especially if they're not, if they're responding very well to conventional treatment, they're not having any gastrointestinal symptoms or other systemic manifestations, it's not always necessary to chase down a food allergy, but it may be in some situations, especially in children. Then you get into asthma, okay? And then later on down the line, all these people that are on Allegra and Claritin and Zyrtec, uh, antihistamines, uh, inhalers, I mean, uh, uh, nasal uh, products that they're inhaling into the nasal mucosa to control seasonal rhinitis, a lot of those individuals are going to be atopic. They may just have dry, itchy skin, and they may have had asthma when they were a child or whatever, not always visibly seeing the eczema, but they're still atopic individuals, and some of them are going to have eczematous dermatitis. What's important is also that these manifestations are discordant. When the atopic dermatitis flares, that doesn't necessarily mean their asthma, if they also have asthma, is flaring at the same time, or that their seasonal rhinitis is flaring at the same time. They're discordant. Just like ocular rosacea, if a patient has ocular rosacea, that could be getting worse, but their cutaneous rosacea is not. So there's discordance when they're actually showing their clinical manifestations. That's important. Now, there's a, a group of individuals, and they could certainly be right, that feel if you control the atopic dermatitis and atopic skin from the time that child is born or very shortly after, you may be able to reduce the likelihood that they get asthma, they get seasonal rhinitis, 
they get food allergies. So you can interrupt this atopic march. It's semi-hypothetical now. It used to be hypothetical. There are theoretical reasons why that might be the case. There's now emerging evidence that if you take an infant that has a very high risk of developing atopic dermatitis, very high risk, because both the parents have atopic disease, manifested atopic disease, atopic eczema, maybe asthma, maybe seasonal rhinitis, both the parents, those children have a very high risk of developing atopic disease and atopic dermatitis. If you control the barrier of the skin from day one and do it consistently, that you may be able to reduce some of those manifestations. There's early evidence of that. And so we have to pay attention to that because we can't say it definitively. It certainly makes sense to do anyway. It's beneficial to the patients for a variety of reasons, but we may be having impact on what's happening to those patients systemically. So just keep that in the back of your mind. So variation in topic, uh, uh, atopic march by age and onset, if there is severe a, or there, if there's atopic dermatitis, it doesn't necessarily have to be severe, that's happening before the age of two, there's a greater likelihood that they may develop some seasonal rhinitis. Not necessarily asthma, possibly. In some, some studies say yes, the one I showed you earlier certainly does. But I think the bottom line is the suggestion that the earlier they manifest, and certainly the more severe they are, the more likelihood they're going to have some of these other manifestations. It's just like if you see a 10-year-old, uh, especially a, a, a girl, 10-year-old girl, that has severe acne, right? Not just the comedones with a few inflammatory papules. You know that's a setup that they're very likely going to have very severe acne when they're 16 or 17 or 15 years old. And you can tell the parents that, so you stay ahead of it so that they're not chasing down things on the internet or other ways to treat, and they're getting their child in too late to really influence what's going on. So this is important. The prevalence, near 80% reported another form of allergy, okay? This is a cross-sectional evaluation of over 2,200 children with AD. A third had symptoms of asthma or allergic rhinitis. About four out of 10 had both, right? Not just one or the other. And if they have more of what you see in the triad, the prognosis is going to be worse. It, may, it, it certainly makes sense, but on a busy day when, we're, when they're just there itching and, and having this eczematous dermatitis, it's very easy just to focus on the skin and not necessarily to factor in some of the education for the parents on what else might be going on. Hard to do in the first visit if you have parents that are bringing in a child that They've never dealt with any of this. It's their first child or it's their first child that is presenting with this eczematous dermatitis. And they're really jacked up in their mind. They're nervous, they're thinking they're doing something wrong. You may not be able to get all that education in the first time, but as you get that child better, then you can typically get a, more of a conversation going. It's hard for them to take all that in on the first visit, but it's important for us to be a part of that, because they're not necessarily getting that at the pediatrician office or at the primary care office, because they're busy also with so many other things. So don't assume that they're getting that education. There's a whole host of other things. With disease states now, 
We did it with psoriasis, and it's, it's certainly reasonable. Some of the comorbidities of psoriasis are significant. And now they're doing it with rosacea and all these other disease states, looking for other things that are associated. And whether they're d directly linked, it's, it, I don't know. I think sometimes we find things just by common association. But when you look at something like uh, attention deficit, children that have eczema and are itchy, it's understandable to realize why they might have attention deficit. If you're itching, you're, it's really hard to pay attention to anything else. So an anxiety and some of these other things may be association just based on the nature of the disease, but it's important to look for those things. Sleep disturbance is extremely important. When there's an exacerbation, it interferes with sleep. And that's not only true of atopic disease, that's true of itching. Because when people are lying there at night, when they have distractions during the day, they'll, they usually don't itch as much. You know, if it's, they have severe paritis, obviously they still are. But when they're trying to lie there at night and go to sleep, or if the itching wakes them up and they're trying to get back to sleep, there's definite disturbance with sleep. And that disturbance, if it's with younger children, is going to spill over into the caretakers and, up, and really influence the whole household. So it's very important that you, you really think about sleep disturbance, and I'm a big believer in treating atopic dermatitis aggressively and trying to shut it down. And we'll talk about that a little bit later, okay? Because I think people uh, tiptoe around it because they're concerned about corticosteroid, topical corticosteroid. Shut this, put this fire out, and then you can back everything off. If you're, if you're too modest in your treatment and it lingers along and they're still having the problem, they lose faith in you and you really don't get them under control adequately. That's my own philosophy. I'll tell you where I got that from. So the, all these other comorbidities we need to be thinking about, and, but, uh, and the osteoporosis and the fracture is related likely to whether or not they had systemic corticosteroids and how much influence they've had on calcium metabolism or a lot of topical corticosteroid that they got systemic absorption that could be in interfering with the bone formation. So we don't always know that. If we're seeing an adult, we have no idea. You know, they'll tell us, but we don't know how accurate it is. So some of these things you know, certainly occur. Now, pathophysiology of the disease. There are two major hypotheses. So let's picture Hillary Clinton raving about one of them and Donald Trump raving about the other. And who knows? Who knows exactly what the truth is? Who knows how to fact check it? Who knows who's right or who's wrong? My personal belief is they're both, they both have some correct components, the outside in and the inside out view. The outside in is that we know that patients that have atopic skin, even when they look normal, have certain deficiencies in their stratum corneum, in their epidermal barrier. And what are some of those? Right. They have a decrease in certain ceramides, lipids that form within the top layer, in the bilayer, that control water loss. Right. So they, since they have that deficiency, they lose water from their skin a lot more easily. Many of them have what are called filaggrin gene mutations. Filaggrin's a protein within the stratum corneum that when you increase filaggrin, 
to try to control water loss, it gets broken down to natural moisturizing factor, right? And natural moisturizing factor is the humectant that holds the water in the skin. That's why people that have dry skin say, I'm drinking more and more water. It doesn't matter. If you can't hold it within that stratum corneum and it gets evaporated out, you could drink water all day. It's not going to make any difference. So a lot of patients that have atopic skin are not able to produce that filaggrin sufficiently. So that's another reason why their barrier loses more water. Right? They also have antimicrobial peptide deficiency, which means that when the skin gets invaded okay, by a microorganism, let's say Staphylococcus, or it can be herpes simplex, or, but let's take bacteria, that's typically what's going on. They don't have the peptides there that can detect and eradicate or reduce that bacterial overgrowth or even infection. So they have this innate deficiency within their skin. And the people that say the outside in feel that that deficiency triggers everything else that happens, that you have allergens and irritants that can then trigger the immune system, which is dysregulated, and then they develop the manifestations of the disease. That's the belief on the outside in. So they believe that if you control that, you can control everything else. That's, that's the primary focus of the, quote, pathogenesis. So they're saying that's the pathogenesis. My belief is it's one of the physiolog pathophysiologic mechanisms of the disease, but it's not the entire story. Okay? The inside-out theory is that, and there's a lot of information. You're going to be hearing a lot about this because the drug I mentioned, dupilumab, inhibits interleukin-4, interleukin-5, interleukin-13, that are all part of what's called this Th2 response, which is dysregulated. We know that's the case in patients that have atopic dermatitis. That's not the only dysregulation, but that's a major one. So you have this drug that turns that off. You're going to have a dramatic effect. And some of that can trigger that barrier dysfunction. Some of that immune dysregulation can trigger that barrier dysfunction. So they feel that the immune dysregulation is the primary source and the barrier is secondary. Okay? They may be right. The bottom line is both of these things are operative. So with what we know right now, we need to address both of them. And it really doesn't, they could argue all day like pundits on television arguing politics. You've got to shut it off after a while, right? It, it, it doesn't matter right now. What matters is we have therapies that can influence these things. Some we have now and some that are coming. So we're going to see a dramatic improvement in how we manage these patients. So the outside in, this is just to summarize what I already said, filaggrin gene mutations. If you look at patients, hyperlinear palms and soles are a very important thing to look for. And as you, if you look at the palms and soles, of individuals and start looking at atopic patients versus non-atopics, you'll see a lot of them have hyperlinear palms and soles, right? And the palms certainly uh, there. And that tends to correlate to some degree with filaggrin gene mutations, not 100%. So if they have filaggrin gene mutations from both sides of the family genetically, they're not gonna be able to produce much filaggrin at all. And they're going to be very deficient in being able to respond to things in the environment that cause increased transepidermal water loss. 
For example, I met a very nice PA outside, Chelsea from Houston, Texas, okay? So she's flying here from Houston where it's humid, right? The first day Chelsea gets here, she is noticing right away, within an hour, that her nose starts to feel dry and her skin starts to feel dry because we don't have any natural humidity that's working as a moisturizer on her skin like you would in Houston. So I don't know if Chelsea has atopic skin or not, but let's say she doesn't. Your natural response of your skin, of your stratum corneum, will be two things. To deposit some preformed ceramides in the stratum corneum to make sure that lipid layer is intact and to rev up filaggrin, increase its production so it could get broken down to natural moisturizing factor. Because what's happening when Chelsea gets off that airplane, goes to her hotel and goes, goes to a function the first day and she's feeling that, is you're losing water because it gets sucked into the environment because there's no, there's no humidity. And your body, your skin compensates for that by those self-repair mechanisms. And it gets everything back to homeostasis. Takes a little while, but it will do it, right? It'll increase the filaggrin, that'll get broken down, it keeps the lipids. Atopic patients, now I don't want to jinx Chelsea, so I'll say somebody else from Houston comes here and they, they're atopic, their skin cannot do that. So they have that deficiency, they're not able to self-repair. Very, very important concept to understand. Individuals that are atopic cannot self-repair, they need help. Their skin needs that additional support, okay? This is fewer filaggrin production. I'm not gonna go through how the filaggrin gene is produced and all that. It basically produces natural moisturizing factor. And when you're deficient in that, it creates a barrier impairment, okay? Now the inside out has to do with immune dysregulation. And it can get very, very complicated. And I understand it pretty well. I don't understand it to the nth degree like I'd like to, like, a, like an immunologist. You just keep reading this stuff and you keep trying to learn it more and more. But I do know one thing, they're dysregulated in that if you look at a biopsy of skin, normal so-called normal skin on an individual that's not atopic, and then you take an individual that's atopic and you biopsy the same location, let's say the forearm, or an area that will typically uh, uh, develop eczema, but it looks normal at that time. In an atopic patient, you'll see more blue cells, you'll see more lymphocytes in that atopic skin, even when it's not flared. There are T cells there that are primed and ready to fire, and they are triggered to produce through what's called the Th2 system, interleukin-4, interleukin-5, interleukin-13, that set off this inflammatory signal this immune signal that then triggers more inflammation and triggers other systems down the line, other TH systems down the line, which also influence the barrier and also influence the chronicity of the disease. That's the best way I can tell you to look at that. So it, IL-4, IL-5, and IL-13, you're gonna hear a lot about because we have a drug that targets that. That's a major part of the pathophysiologic mechanism, but there's a whole host of other immune responses that are happening in that patient. That's happening from within and then affecting the skin. 
So that's the inside out. They're both going on. Okay? That's the important thing to take away. Right? Now, the role of phosphodiesterase PDE, okay, there are several different phosphodiesterase enzymes within our body. Phosphodiesterase 4, or PDE4, is in a variety of different cells. It's intracellular. Right? All these other things we're talking about, interleukins and all these chemical messages, messengers are extracellular that are going to affect cells by targeting certain receptors or getting within the cell and triggering certain pathways. PDE4 is intracellular, and it's part of this homeostatic mechanism to keep everything in balance, right? It's sort of like the dolly, okay, of your immune system, one of them, within individual cells. And what happens is we have a substance called cyclic AMP, and what phosphodiesterase 4 does, it, convert, it converts cyclic AMP to AMP, right? And so if you have a disease state where you have more phosphodiesterase 4, it converts more of that cyclic AMP to AMP. Remember this. Cyclic AMP is your friend. AMP is not. AMP triggers inflammation that has been associated downstream with producing some of these, some of these lymphocyte responses that increase interleukin-4, increase interleukin-5, and can trigger inflammation in both atopic dermatitis and psoriasis. That's why we have a PDE4 inhibitor, Premolast, right? That's available orally for psoriasis. And there, is, is some, uh, there are some people looking at it for atopic eczema. There's a topical phosphodiesterase for inhibitor, topical chrysoboral, which is submitted to the FDA, and we'll, we'll show you some of the data. That will be topically applied. It will avoid any systemic effects that you have with the, with the oral, like gastrointestinal side effects, because it doesn't get into the systemic circulation very much. But it will give you that topical benefit of trying to stop that increased phosphodiesterase 4 activity that upsets the balance within the cells of inflammation. So it, it has an anti-inflammatory. It's sort of like a, an equalizer for your stereo, all these different things. You're looking at a patient, and you have all these circuits and they can be in, in imbalance to different degrees in different patients. And you're trying to reset those signals with all these different mechanisms of treatment. That's the best way that I can explain that. So this is a very important mechanism of disease. Now the environmental triggers. Because you have dry skin, and before you can even see any eczema or dry skin, when the transepidermal water loss is increasing, why is that important? Who cares if you're losing 10% more water through your skin? You can drink more water. You get thirsty and you'll drink more water. What is the impact of that on the skin? The impact of that is the enzymatic functions within the stratum corneum that keep your skin healthy looking, make it resilient rather than rigid, okay? make you uh, shed the cells, the corneocytes, individually. So you, you're shedding them right now. The person next to you is shedding them on you. You're shedding them on them. It's, it's the way the world is. But it's happening by single cells. So we don't even know it's, hap it's happening. That's physiologic. That's what we want. 
That's how the stratum corneum replaces itself. The enzymes involved in that are hydrolytic. They require certain levels of water. When that water level goes down, because of increased transepidermal water loss, what happens? Those enzymes become sluggish. So now, the enzymes that are involved with breaking the corneocytes apart so they get shed individually become lazy, and some of the corneocytes don't separate. So they get clumped. What does that look like on the skin? Scales, flaking. You actually see it when it gets bad enough, when it gets down the line. But this is happening before you can visibly see it. The other effect that happens where you need certain amounts of water within the skin to affect other enzymes is the skin gets very rigid. So there are studies that are being done now that look at certain products, certain moisturizers and barrier repair products, how much they affect the resiliency of the skin. Because if the skin is getting rigid and you have a shearing force on it, even a mild shearing force, and it's rigid, what is it going to do? It's going to fissure like a dry ground in a drought, right? right? We've all seen those pictures in Texas, right? The dry ground, and you get fissures. Within the skin, and there are great photomicrographs of this, we develop microfissures. Before you can visibly see fissuring, you have microfissuring that you can't see. That's a portal of entry for allergens, irritants, bacteria, other microorganisms that can now get access. When the stratum corneum was intact, it allowed very little entry of that. That's the basis of, of treating that and taking care of that from day one to prevent the allergens, the bacteria, and other things from now getting greater access into the skin on a regular basis in atopic skin. Makes sense, doesn't it? So with Staphylococcus aureus, Staphylococcus aureus is everywhere, and there are different strains. Even within MRSA, methicillin-resistant Staph aureus, and methicillin-sensitive Staph aureus, there are a variety of different strains that can produce different exotoxins and other chemical messengers. Staphylococcus aureus loves fissured and microfissured skin. It will colonize, right? Staph aureus likes that. So within that, you have certain exudate, you have fibronectin and things that Staph aureus loves to attach to. So on atopic patients, even when their skin is normal, they colonize a lot more Staph aureus because their skin is microfissured because they're still having increased transepidermal water loss that they can't compensate for, and they have decreased antimicrobial peptides that would, on normal skin, keep that staphylococcus away. So colonization is very common in patients that have staphylococcus aureus within the skin. When they have a, when they have a flare, the areas of eczema, it's even going to be higher. Now, some of these strains can actually produce exotoxins and other chemicals that can trigger a flare or prolong a flare of atopic dermatitis. We never know exactly which ones those are. Even if we can culture off of the skin and find the staph, you'd have to do some very special testing to find out if it's one of those strains. But that's one of the reasons why years ago, we used to, years ago, when I, when I just first got out of residency, so we're talking 1986, 1987, we used to put people on erythromycin 
thinking long-term, thinking that we were going to influence their recurrence of, of eczema. It was a big mistake because it didn't happen, but what did happen? That chronic exposure to the antibiotic increased antibiotic resistance and staphylococcal resistance to erythromycin. When I came out of my residency, we used erythromycin all the time for staph aureus. Now, it's not effective because you have this chronic administration. You're going to hear more about antibiotic resistance from Dr. Belasco coming up. Uh, but that's one of the things, one of the ways that this happens. So we, we know that the Staphylococcus aureus is there. We may utilize certain approaches like bleach baths and things to help out that might have some influence um, in some cases. But the bottom line is the antibiotic use is when you have visible infection only to treat the course of the infection, not to administer chronically. We, we know that that's not a good idea, right? It's a, it can be a trigger. I already mentioned that in some situations, okay? Talked about this, right? Now, the pathogenesis is very complicated. And when you see a speaker, um, and we'll include myself in this, that says, you know, this is a very complicated slide. You know, because of time, we don't have time to explain it to you. Uh, maybe another time. There's two possibilities. They understand it, but they don't have time, or they don't understand it, and they're trying to get past that complicated slide, right? right. But both of those can be true. Because it is very complicated, and it takes a lot of time to understand this. The take-home point is looking at some of the key places. Phosphodiesterase 4 is, is a key place intracellularly that can have a lot to do with AD and uh, atopic dermatitis inflammation. So are IL-4, IL-5, and IL-13, right? Downstream, you could start to have some of these other mechanistic pathways that can be involved, that we may get therapies to target downstream. But it's better to target upstream because you're affecting so many other pathways down the line, okay? And I think that's why I'm excited about the topical and the systemic drug that we have coming. Diagnosis and assessment. I don't think we have problems uh, with people in this room. There may be some people here that are new to dermatology. It won't take very long if you're in a situation where you're getting the proper education in, in where you are and certainly coming to these meetings. Being able to diagnose eczematous dermatitis, right? I would encourage you, if you don't have the Thomas Abif, the textbook, not the Atlas, clinical dermatology, get one. Get a hard copy, not the online stuff. Get it in your hands and feel it and read that chapter about eczematous dermatitis, right? It's a great chapter. It'll explain a lot of things if you don't feel you have those fundamentals yet. It, it, it's really great. Acute, subacute, and chronic eczematous dermatitis. Atopic dermatitis can fit into any of that. But when we see the patients that come in that have antecubital popliteal accentuation, the headlight sign on the face in the younger patients, the history of asthma in the mother, father, brother, sister, um, close first degree relatives, or seasonal rhinitis, parents having a history of eczema, all those things, it's really not that hard to put together a constellation that the patient is atopic. Dry skin, itchy, itchy skin, even when they're not flared. So I, I think the diagnosis, there are a variety of different criteria that are used, but I don't think we have trouble making that diagnosis. Now, I'll tell you one of the things I do 
And I learned this from David Cohen, the dermatologist at NYU, brilliant guy. I'm sure many of you have heard him speak, one of the smartest guys I've ever met um, in and outside of dermatology, is that when they're really young and you see them early on, don't necessarily code it atopic dermatitis because that becomes a lifelong code. Just code it in eczematous dermatitis and see what happens over time, right? They may have atopic skin, but don't necessarily give them that lifelong diagnosis that they're gonna have in their insurance records until you're sure they're gonna be a recurrent situation. And I, and I think that's very wise. Treatment guidelines, you could find many different treatment guidelines uh, you know, in different publications that are helpful, but by and large, treatment guidelines have the bias of the people that are there writing the guidelines. I've been involved in a lot of guidelines and recommendations, and there's a certain amount of bias, but then if the people are motivated, they're gonna go to the literature and try to give you the best information. But they tend to try to be all-inclusive of all the possibilities, and and they'll likely tell you, well, this doesn't tend to be as effective, but they don't want to shoot anybody in the foot for doing something and not in realizing it's a difficult disease. They don't want to say, oh, you should not have done that. So they tend to be fairly forgiving for that reason. So it's important to be thinking beyond the treatment guidelines in addition to what they say if that makes sense, right? They're not hard and fast, they're not rules. If you don't follow them, nobody's gonna to come to your office with handcuffs. They're just there to give you a sense of what to do, okay? Critical issues regarding guideline, guideline use is basically what I said. It will give you a nice synopsis to read, especially some of the better ones, but there is always new information that we need, and the judgment is you there with the patient. You have other people in the practice, you have other physician assistants that work with you, you hopefully have dermatologists that are there that you could call on if you have more difficult cases, and you can discuss how to manage the patient. But that's where the decisions are made on what's going on with the patient at that time. Also to rem remember to consider that what you might be looking at is allergic contact dermatitis in a patient that has atopic skin and has had atopic eczema. A classic, two classic examples of that. Periumbilical eczematous papules. It was, it was described uh, related to either the belt buckle or a snap or something that's being worn that's creating a pressure contact where you have a chemical getting around the periumbilical area. That's a sign of atop, that they're likely, they likely also have atopic dermatitis because they, it just has been something that has been noticed. It doesn't mean they all do. The same thing is nickel allergy, like from earrings. It, that's higher in atopics than it is in the general population, though it can happen in, in both. So think about it that that patient may also be an atopic and not just an isolated allergic contact dermatitis. Then there may be other things, right? They have severe itching. Don't forget about scabies. It's commonly misdiagnosed. It's commonly misdiagnosed in primary care settings. It's, primarily, it's commonly misdiagnosed in dermatology practices. Always think about that when you're looking at uh, diffuse pruritus. Then there are other conditions. You, you can have children that have underlying uh, genetic immune deficiencies where eczematous skin and atopic eczema are part of that. 
So if you have children that are having diff uh, difficulty with chronic repeated infections or difficulty with growth or other systemic symptoms going on, think about those possibilities. And if you have persistent cutaneous lesions that are just not going away, even though you're hitting them pretty hard, remember that occasionally, in adults especially, you can have T-cell lymphomas, right? These are just things in the back of your mind. What I, when I had the residency here, I always told the residents, I said, when you walk out of the room, I don't care if it was just warts or acne or psoriasis, always ask yourself, did I possibly miss something in that patient? And you may not necessarily have to address it that day, you may address it later, but always be thinking that you might be missing something, because you might, right? And that's very important, because we can get very cavalier with common diseases. I do it all the time, and I could be forgetting something important. Current topical approaches, mild to moderate. Uh, I, when, this mild to moderate, moderate to severe, is just a general way of looking at how the patient looks on that day, right? So that is going to influence what you might use at that particular point in time. Other things that might influence it is what the patient has had before, the age of the patient, the body surface area, all those sort of things become important. So we have goals. And when patients come in, they're typically coming in with a flare, right, of the disease. So they have a flare of the eczema and they're itchy, right? Itching is the most important thing to shut down by far, right? Does anybody that disagree with that? Itching is what's really making them miserable. Now, if you get rid of the itching in five to seven days, then they're complaining about the visible rash. They forget about the itching, a lot of them. But itching is ultimately the problem, and then certainly to control the, uh, the visible eczema, and if they have infection, we certainly take care of that, if they have visible infection. But the goal is to really shut down that itching, because that's what's making everyone miserable. If it's a child, they can't sleep, they're rubbing at their skin. If it's an adult, they can tell you how miserable they are with the itching. So there are certain things that we certainly want to educate what they're utilizing to cleanse their skin. You'll find out, especially, I'll say, in adult males, they're using abrasive or irritating uh, soaps instead of using something that's kinder and gentler on the skin. You want gentle skin care, and you want a care, I think, that'll try to replenish some of the ceramides and things that we know are deficient within the skin. Then we have a variety of different topical agents and potential systemic agents, so we'll walk through this. The stepladder approach, and this is something that we're typically going to see in the literature. It's something that I don't do, and I don't think you do either, right? Yes, you'll start off by giving them the general education about what they have and how to use the basic skin care, and you'll recommend certain products, maybe over-the-counter products, cleanser, moisturizer, or even some of the prescription barrier repair products. That's fundamental. But then after that, are you going to sit there and decide you know, that you're going to go slower just because you have to walk up this ladder? You're going to go to what's on the left and look at how bad they are that day and go right to that point in time. You, topical therapy and potentially systemic therapy or two topical agents. right? 
And so that's an important part of it. What is going on on that given day with that patient to shut down the disease? Now, these are just cases, you know, I don't know that we need them necessarily to show what, I want, what we want to show. But this is a seven-month-old with uh, eczematous dermatitis, treated with moisturizers, but still has the rash and itch. And so obviously you want to give them the care about in and out, they can bathe. Restricting bathing is not necessary. They can bathe every day. They can bathe when they need to treat the child. But you want them in and out. You don't want them using bubble baths and irritants. And the whole idea that you have to moisturize right there and then to moist skin, whether or not you mo moisturize then or moisturize later, ultimately it really doesn't make any difference. But it's convenient for them to do it at that point in time because they're right there taking care of themselves or taking care of their child, right? That soak and seal is, it has been shown not to be exactly true, but it, it's something that makes sense to them and may get them to actively do it. Now, topical corticosteroids. Topical corticosteroids, when you have an, somebody in with an eczematous flare, there's a fire, okay? And Sarah Chamlin, a pediatric dermatologist in Chicago, I heard her say, we'll have parents that are just so worried about using corticosteroids. Even adults, if they've been told about all these horrible things that corticosteroids will do, they're told more horrible about that, yet they can get a biologic with no discussion of potential immunosuppression or side effects. But in the same place, they'll be telling them, oh, be careful how much you put on, you're going to get atrophy. Yeah, all that's true, but scaring them to not use it is the worst thing that you could possibly do. Because with topical corticosteroids, they're turning off the main switch. They affect every circuit, right? That's why they're great for the immediate effect, but they're not so great for the prolonged effect. John Hannafin, who is the father of atopic eczema, I've heard him speak and say several times, and Ron Hansen, one of the people that wrote one of the major textbooks with Larry Schachter on pediatric dermatology, forget those places that say use the weakest for the shortest period of time. Use hydrocortisone or low potency. It's not how strong, it's how long. Hit it hard and shut it off quick, and then you can back off. So I'm using high potency corticosteroids in babies for five days, right? I wanna shut it down. And then when those parents come back and they're doing a lot better, they have confidence in me. If they come back a week later and they're still having a problem, they may not even come back anymore. They might go somewhere else or go to the internet. So hitting, the, hitting it hard and backing off, and then even using preemptive therapy, which it's like a no-no to talk about this in the United States because the way the drugs are approved, they're only approved for when the disease is there, so you can't talk about this. But there's been data with tacrolimus, which is uh, protopic, uh, and it would certainly be true, of, I think, of any of the other non-steroidal agents, and even mid-potency corticosteroids, that when you get that patient clear, right, a lot of these patients will typically have their flares in the same areas. They'll tell you the back of the neck, my ankle, in front of my arms. Twice a week, have them continue utilizing either a, a prescription non-steroidal agent, like pimacrolimus, tacrolimus. I think chrysoboral will fall into that when it comes. Twice a week, preemptively, or a mid-potency corticosteroid, you reduce their flares dramatically over time. It's been proven in several studies. We don't get to talk about that a lot, but it's extremely important. So when you have that totally nervous 
parent or individual about steroids, first of all, it's not the steroids that Barry Bonds or whoever was using, right? It's, but there are corticosteroid complications. Give me a week and then we'll, we'll back off. You, and you, you negotiate with them and you have a significant effect on the disease. 14-year-old girl with mild to moderate atopic dermatitis, initially treated with corticosteroids, switched to intermittent pimacrolimus. Um, now we get into the calcineurin inhibitors. You notice they use the corticosteroids first. That's because the labeling, the black box warning, which is based on absolutely nothing in humans, okay? Nothing, it's all animal data, never been proven to have any relationship to what goes on in humans, they were, they were put to second line. Well, they're not second line agents. They're first line agents if the patients have face or milder disease into trigenous areas or using in combination with corticosteroids, but they've been pigeonholed the other way, right? Based on the FDA, based on a reaction to over-marketing and off-label things and the, you're treating children, the FDA shut the whole thing down by putting black boxes. But they did not have any data to show that any of that was proven in humans. They just had high level exposures beyond what patients would get in certain animals. And we know those are immunosuppressive drugs if the patient gets a ton of it, but they're not gonna get a ton of it when you're applying it topically. So unfortunately, these drugs got pushed aside into some of those complicated areas, right? We talked about the PD-4. Now, beyond the flare management, I think it's really important to make sure that they know when they're clear that they continue their fundamental skin care every single day to try to keep their skin supple, to try to keep the microfissures down, the integrity of their skin, the structural and functional integrity of the stratum corneum is very, very important. And adherence is obviously very important. And once people are clear and better, they usually let up, and that's where we need to encourage them. Food allergy, we talked about that. If you have a patient that is refractory to what you were doing, and you're looking at that patient thinking to yourself, what I gave them really should have controlled this, and you're having difficulty, Work with an allergist in your area that knows what they're doing in atopics to see if they could find a food allergy that may be a problem or a certain external allergen. Every once in a while, they will, and I've seen that. So for in the dermatology mindset, it may be different than what allergists might say. They may want to be much more aggressive in all these patients for whatever reason, right? Uh, in my mind, if they are refractory, then you can make a difference, okay? Now, emerging information, randomized control trial in the US and the UK, full body emollient therapy. This is Eric Simpson's study. This is the one where they took the infants of the parents that had a high risk of atopic dermatitis because both parents had it. And they treated them with, a, with a good skincare for the barrier, and they reduced the emergence of ex eczema over time compared to the ones that they didn't. And there are other studies that are starting to show that. So this is hopefully the work that we're going to get from the atopic march. Now moving on to moderate disease, uh, controlling Staph aureus might help. Um, there are certain sodium hypochlorite cleansers and things you can use. I'm not a big bleach bath user, 
you know, off right all the time. Certainly in certain cases where they have a lot of colonization, it might help. And you can see there the half a cup of 6% bleach per full tub, okay, how you mix it up. I, I think for a lot of parents that becomes cumbersome. And some of them may be wondering, you know, bleach sounds a little bit caustic, though if you mix it that way, it might be helpful. But there is some evidence that it, it can help. But this was not a pure study. Some of them were getting cephalexin, some of them were getting mepiracin. They weren't only getting bleach baths. But bleach baths might help with the staff. Current systemic approaches, I'll go through this quick. Now you have this patient that everything you're doing is not working or they have severe disease, or they come in with very chronic severe disease. It's very diffuse, it could be a child or an adult. And there are a variety of different things that you can do. And basically, we'll continue the topicals, but now you're getting into systemic treatment. And the systemic treatments we have, I'm gonna go through sort of fast, but systemic corticosteroids are something that if you use them, it has to be a very short course and you have to control it. Because if that patient gets improvement, they're gonna to wanna to stay on them, and you can't keep them on that. And especially patients that are older, even short courses can be problematic, or in diabetics, or patients with osteoporosis. So they're great in the short term in occasional situations to try to get the disease less severe and control it other ways, but it's not something you wanna get locked into. Cyclosporin, oral cyclosporin works extremely well and you'll see patients continue to improve over time, both children and adults. But it carries the baggage, a lot of drug interactions, it is immunosuppressive, you have to watch uh, kidney function hyper and hypertension, regardless of the age in these patients. But it will be very helpful in certain patients. Okay? And this is just showing you examples of cyclosporin. Okay? There are other things, there's phototherapy. Phototherapy can be helpful. You don't wanna use it during a flare, but phototherapy can be helpful for chronic control. Some of the difficulty related to that is insurance coverage. They, they get a copay that each time and, and their insurance doesn't wanna cover it, so that can become complicated, but it can be helpful. And you have other immunosuppressives you can go to that um, that you can utilize for atopic dermatitis. Narrowband UVB, methotrexate, there's a little bit of data, um, not something I'll use very often. Azathioprine, I've never used, though it is in the literature. It carries some potential substantial hematologic toxicity. I wouldn't just write this drug because you read about it. It's something you have to really make sure that, um, that you're familiar with. And if it's an adult especially, you do not want them on allopurinol because allopurinol inhibits the metabolism of azathioprine, and they can, within a few months, get serious hematologic toxicity. Mycophenolate mofetil, a little bit kinder. Um, it may be helpful in some patients, but these are things in your hip pocket that you might need to utilize. And then the, uh, there are other agents that are out there. They're not things that we're using very much. Um, omalizumab, which is Zolaire, which is for asthma, and relates to inhibiting IgE is not always helpful in patients that have atopic dermatitis. There are some studies that show it might help, and there are some studies that show it may not be as helpful. And certainly the dosing we use for chronic urticaria is probably not gonna be enough. These patients, if it's going to be used for atopic eczema, likely need higher doses and more frequent administration, okay? So the, the, they put antihistamines there um, and antibiotics and unaffected atopic dermatitis. 
uh, and things like Montelukast and leukotriene inhibitors, which you see patients on, don't work very well. Antihistamines don't really affect the eczematous dermatitis, but on occasion, you'll get patients that'll tell you that their pruritus improves for whatever reason, right? And so I'll certainly try them. I might use a sedating antihistamine at night, probably helping them more with sleep than anything else, but they are, they are anecdotally helpful in some of the patients, okay? So the emerging therapies, and we'll end up. I already talked about chrysoboral. Chrysoboral is a topical agent in an ointment applied twice a day. It's a boron-based compound. All the boron does is get the drug to its target, right? That's, that's what boron does. It doesn't have, it's not, it, it, you know, it's not inherently anti-inflammatory. You know, Tavaboral, which is an antifungal, has boron because it gets it to the target it needs to hit. And boron is very, very safe. So chrysoboral has been looked at in a variety of different studies twice a day. And it's with the FDA right now, the phase three trials. Everything's been completed in large numbers of patients. And like I said, it's a boron-based compound that gets it actively to inhibit that PDE4. And so you're not getting the cyclic AMP that's increased, broken down to AMP, right? And that's the mechanism we already talked about. There were maximal use studies. They basically marinated the patients, including young children, high body surface areas, prolonged time, no high blood levels and no problem with safety. So that was encouraging, because you're always concerned if a new compound is gonna get any systemic uh, exposure. And they were able to show efficacy compared to the vehicle in terms of two-grade improvement, two-grade improvement plus clear or almost clear. Here you're looking at clear or almost clear. The vehicle being an ointment has some substantial effect, but the active was significantly better over a month of treatment twice a day and you're just seeing some examples of this. It's non-steroidal, so it's gonna be welcome to have an agent like this that, that doesn't carry that baggage that the calcineurin inhibitors carry that we have to deal with. And it doesn't, doesn't look like PD-4 inhibitors are very immunosuppressive. They're anti-inflammatory, not very immunosuppressive. And it has effects on different features of the disease. I'm not a data beater. Um, improve pruritus quickly the vehicle and the active drug did. And so that's gonna be something to look at when the drug first comes out. Does it match up? If it's shutting off paritis as quickly as it did in the studies, that's gonna be a very welcome thing. Safety was very, very promising. The treatment emergent adverse effects were minimal, okay? You can get some stinging and burning. Occasionally you can get flare of atopic eczema. Occasionally you can get an infection that overrides, but there wasn't anything that seemed to be related to the drug doing that versus the vehicle. Now, a premolast I already talked about, the oral. There are some studies that are looking at that. A Stellara, which is downstream, has been looked at in a few studies. Remains to be seen whether that's gonna go very far. The big one that's, that should be coming is Dupilumab. It's been put on a fast track. This is an injectable biologic that'll probably be 300 milligrams every week or every other week, potentially both. Dramatic effect in reducing moderate and severe atopic dermatitis, both in the clinical manifestations of the disease and some of the genetic markers of the disease. So this is gonna be something that, it's only been evaluated in adults, right? 
and if we don't have pediatric data yet, that is going to be there instead of some of those other agents like methotrexate and azathioprine that I think that as long as the safety continues to be as good as it's showing in the studies, um, is going to be our go-to for that particular group of patients. Right? And they've showed in a variety of different studies that it's effective. Potential targets for the future remain to be seen, and I think that list is going to get longer just like it did with psoriasis. Remember when Tanercept came, Embrel? Everybody thought TNF was the magical cytokine that we're gonna shut off the disease. It's helpful, it makes a big difference, but it's not the only one. There are always other players in the mix. And so in summary, we have a variety of different agents that we can use to treat atopic dermatitis. And I'm gonna stop and take one question. Take one question from the group. Do you have any questions? I think, do we have any that were put into the system? Doesn't look like it. So I'm gonna stop at this point. We went over about one minute. I apologize for that. We started a little bit late. Oh, here's one. Let me see. Let me take one. Based on the science, will new biologics for eczema positively affect the other atopic issues, such as asthma, rhinitis, allergies, and urticaria? We do have some evidence with IL-4, IL-5 inhibition, IL-13 inhibition for asthma, and potentially the others. It will remain to be seen. So I'm going to stop at this point, and thank you very much. Thanks, Dave, for you and your group for organizing this and for having That made sense. Okay. This has been a presentation of Dermcast.tv, the official online media resource for the Society of Dermatology PAs.